we sit and join the shade. Hey, brother, pour the wine. Drink the drink that I have made. Hey, brother, pour the wine. Good evening. Happy Sunday. Welcome to Drink in the Style, brought to you by Habitation Furnishing and Design. I'm your host, Gregory Rich, and I'm going to help you kill your Saturday and Sunday early evenings with some booze and conversation. I changed that up because we are now airing uh, here in Minneapolis on both Saturdays and Sunday. Saturdays at, what is it, Brett, 6 p.m.? 7 p.m. 7 p.m.? yes. I'm with it. That's prime time. Exactly, yeah. Wow. Greg's going to go home and draw a bubble bath and listen to his radio show on Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I always do. It's just usually the podcast. Bath salts, anyone? Um, my, oh, I did just get a, actually a whole new shipment of Epsom salts, Weird. eucalyptus scented. Oh, I dig that, though. I dig that. Right? Mm-hmm. Top notch. It makes your skin baby soft, soothes your muscles, and... Uh, yeah, we aren't going anywhere further on that. So my guest this evening <laughs> is the man that Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine likes to refer to as the style maker. I researched you. Mr. Carter Everback from Um For May Studio in Minneapolis. Carter, how are you? I'm doing great. How does it feel to be a style maker? I was born to be that. You were born to be a style maker. Carter is an extraordinary individual in the design and art community. We're going to be talking about uh, not just general design, but we're also going to be talking about the uh, vintage furniture that he recreates, which is awe-inspiring, the art that he creates as well, and a whole bunch of other things. And it's going to be really, really interesting because we have an interesting cocktail created by our dedicated cocktailist who is back in the United States, Dan Newkirk. Welcome home. Thanks. Good to be back. How was Mexico? Anything you can tell us about? Yeah, you know, uh, I learned how to surf. Awesome. Totally I, awesome. I, uh, I I definitely enjoyed walking uh, through small fishing, surfing villages, and kind of hanging out. So you did like a, a solo trek through Mexico. Yeah, it was awesome. That's crazy. Yeah. That's absolutely crazy. What part of Mexico? Uh, well, I flew into Puerto Vallarta because that was the cheapest and the fastest because only a four-hour direct flight. Nice. Uh, and then I headed north up to Sayulita, okay. which is a well-known like surf hippie community. Okay. Uh, but I, I I walked all the way up there, so it was like it was like twenty miles. Um, up the coastline. It was awesome. Like little, little old grannies, you know, making tortillas on the ground. I was like, oh, that's where I need to eat. So Everything was amazing. On the coast? Yeah. yeah. It was super dope. That's solid. You stepping over dead bodies on the way or anything? Or not, no. No, no risks, no drug cartel shootings? What, that... what happens in Mexico stays in Mexico, my friend. <laughs> I killed three people and I learned to surf. Thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Now, we are straying a little bit from the uh, cocktailogy menu that we would normally have embraced, which is usually a very, uh, huh, a very strong brown liquor based uh, type of a, of a cocktail, and instead tell our listeners what Mr. Averbeck has requested. Well, the request that I got last night while I was uh, out with some friends at a silent auction. I get a test. Do you know what a, are you cool with doing a death in the afternoon? I was like, oh, my God, we're going to die in the afternoon. <laughs> so death in the afternoon, uh, a, a nice cocktail that Ernest Hemingway kind of coined because uh, he used to drink these in the afternoon and get just sh- schnuckered. Uh, well, he died drinking one of them. Well, yes. But he, he killed himself. He drank them before. on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just it's champagne with uh, absinthe. And now, of course, like, you know, 
back in the day, everybody, you know, seen the Green Fairy. They don't, they don't make that absinthe that way anymore. Yeah. Uh, this is American absinthe. Yeah. Uh, Americanized absinthe. But it still has strong notes of anise and uh, wormwood, which I am not a fan of. We, we did our warm-up shot, and I, all you guys were like, oh, this is great. I'm like, I want to die. <laughs> so the drink really is hitting <laughs> well, home for me. Afternoon. Yeah, Yeah, we're good. We're yeah. killing it. Yeah, exactly. Now, for uh, for listeners out there, by way of just a little bit of historical background, absinthe is a green liqueur that uh, was extremely popular, uh, basically through all of history, and especially in the early part of the 20th century, among the European-based uh, American literati, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, the whole crew from Midnight in Paris, if you'd this, like. This is the drink for masochists, because, man... It is so. It's like a. It's a uh, uh, an anise forward uh, uh, green liqueur that uh, had traditionally been infused with a hallucinogen called wormwood. So the writers would sit on the banks of the Seine. They would sip their absinthe and they would basically hallucinate. Eventually, getting the uh, the name the Green Fairy. Uh, for the the bottle of liquor that uh, who would appear at some point and help inspire them as a muse, is that correct, uh, yes, Carter? That is correct. Yeah. See, insane depths of useless knowledge overall. It then became <laughs> uh, illegal. It was banned uh, in the 30s, I think. Well, it was well it banned in the United States. During even in Europe too. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. During prohibition, of course, it was banned. Yeah. Uh, even in Europe, it became banned because of the wormwood, even though they had other alcohol uh, available. Um, and then eh, a handful of years ago, it kind of made a comeback, uh, but it made a comeback without the hallucinogen hallucinogen properties. Yeah. Um, so it's still an insanely strong liquor. Any idea what the proof is on that? Uh, you... A lot. Yeah. Yeah. That'll work. We're feeling great. All right. So there it is. That's the uh, the background of uh, of uh, absinthe. So, Brad, hit us with some mixing music. So and Dan, walk us through this catastrophe. Honestly, we're just gonna put some bitters, uh, one ounce per, and then top with some bubbles. Um, I'm gonna chill the absinthe to help me a little bit, but screw you guys. Fair enough. Fair enough. So uh, we're porting. We have an ice-filled Yari. Is that correct? Hey, was word. Uh, thank you very much. You can learn more about Yaris in the upcoming Drinking the Style Companion. We'll talk about that soon. All right. So you've got uh, two shots of, uh, of absinthe going in. You're making four drinks, so it's the equivalent of half a shot per. What well, one ounce per? All right, one ounce per. What kind of bitters are you using? I think we're gonna do the first one with a little bit of lemon. First one, you're ambitious. And this one, I feel like we're gonna have what just one, uh, and a cedar and cloves. Ooh. Wow. It's like spa day. Happy <laughs> <laughs> drinking. Uh, seriously. All right. So you've mixed the uh, the bitters and the uh, absinthe, but you have not mixed in the champagne yet. So you're mixing that up in the yari. Maybe a half dozen uh, revolutions. Man, this is the easiest drink we've ever made on the show. This is great. Right. So you should thank me at least for that. Oh yeah, I'll thank you, all right, after the show. Jesus. <laughs> All right, so you're pouring in the uh, absinthe bitters mix, which has been chilled into a, uh, what do you call these glasses? Champagne flute? Champagne flute. Now you're adding a good deal of bitters. No, I mean, one eyedropper is usually the way to go, but I'm doing half because I'm going to split the difference awesome. with the two different bitters. Okay. So basically, you were just kill- cooling down the absinthe. You were not blending the... Yeah, I didn't dilute very much. I just wanted to get it uh, a little bit more room temperature friendly. Okay. Additional bitters. You're going heavy on the bitters. Salt and pepper and cocktails, my friend. Yeah, no. Amen to that. 
And then we've got our bubbles. What specifically have you chosen? Uh, this is mum, so it can't be called champagne, but it's the same thing. It just comes out of California. Okay, sparkling wine. And I'm also going to hit it with a, uh, a tincture. You boys want to go rosemary or vanilla? Rosemary. Excellent. Rosemary it shall be. All right. Dude, this is making like the perfect color for uh, St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, that's what I was going for, Greg. Yeah, well done. Thanks of all the Irish, Albanian. Yeah, that, uh, that's a one hell of a hybrid. <laughs> things could not go worse. All right. We got it mixed up. We're going to try this over the break. And when we come back, we're going to tell you what we think about death in the afternoon and how much damage this thing does to us. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Drink in the Style. Stick with us. Out of town were the people I knew. I had that feeling of... My story is much too sad to be told But practically everything Leaves me totally cold The only exception I know is the case When I'm out on a quiet spree Fighting vainly Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Drink in the Style. One-hour conversation about art, architecture, design, pretty much anything aesthetic. We're enjoying the sounds of Frank Sinatra here in the year 2020 as we work through his entire body of work starting in 1950. I am your host, Gregory Rich, and my guest today is a fixture in the Minneapolis design community, Mr. Carter Everbeck. All right, Carter, we you get a chance to talk in this segment. Are you excited? Yay. Woohoo. That's fantastic. Hey, nice. I love Let's the see if I can keep up with you. Yeah, no, I'm drinking death in the afternoon and and yeah, no. Which means I can keep up with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, this is so going to descend into some kind of <laughs> drunken rant about the Welsh. It's just unavoidable. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, let's talk about you, Carter. Let's. Uh, there's so many things we could discuss. Um, I'm not exactly sure where we should start. But I know I'm a Renaissance man, which you, is hard to describe because Renaissance people in general were like common before like 21st century. It was, it, and now we aren't. We're like the super chupacabra rarity. It's absolutely true. Now we're in an age of specialization. You do one thing, that's all you do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it comes from a time, the Renaissance thing, I think, comes from a time when people thought that maybe they could master everything and know everything. And then we realized you can't, and people instead decided to focus endlessly well, not on... not everything, but several things. 100%. But you are indeed a Renaissance man. Mm-hmm. So let's start Let's start with your studio, Homme Forme. Yes. Say it. Homme Forme. Beautiful. The more you say Homme Forme, the more you enjoy saying Homme Forme. Yeah, I wish other people would say that, but they just say Homme Form. Oh. Which is fine, as long as they call me to do some work. <laughs> I'm good with it. Is, uh, is that an ox in the grand or an ox in the good? Like over the that makes the noise. Om, I'm serious. Om forme. Om forme. Right, but it's got it's got the thing over the. It's, yeah. Is it ox in the ground? Or is ox in the good? I don't understand. It, it's, it's the it's the thing uh, over the top of the. It, it's at it's at the end. Okay, yeah, I think it's the ox in the good. Ox in the good. <laughs> I, t- I right. took French for a couple years. Really? Yeah. Oh, nice. I can I can read it, but I don't know what I'm saying. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I I I be a no souffle. That's 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 what I've got. <laughs> It's good. Souffle. But I can sound really, really arrogant. So I'm halfway to speaking French. Oh, well. Tell me about Homme Forme. Um, well, for those of us who aren't Norwegian, 
<laughs> it is a Norwegian term, and it just means to transform. It's Norwegian? It's not even French? Here we are picking yeah. on the French? And you're well, I'm an French. idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. Yeah, it's a Norwegian word. Om for to transform. As you can tell by my blonde hair, which I don't have, I'm Norwegian. Wait, you... <laughs> <laughs> the straight, the straight face. I wasn't sure if he was serious. I was confused. Or not. I'm like, you're hey, blonde, but you actually dye your hair brun- brunette. All right, fair enough. You are a man of your. You dance to your own drummer. That's fine. All right, Omforme, which is now we've learned Norwegian transformation. And why have you called your studio Omforme? Because I transform furniture, transform rooms, transform homes, and in essence, you're transforming people's lives. I mean, by doing design work for them, 100%. making their homes. Better. 100%. Yeah. So one of your trademark skills as a Renaissance man is is the recreation of vintage furniture. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. When you and I became friends when we first started talking, um, you know, you, 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 you were uh, uh, at that point, I think, recovering and, and redeveloping uh, furniture and you were dipping it in – Rubber. In rubber to take (laughs) indoor furniture, vintage indoor furniture, and turn it into usable outdoor furniture. Well, yeah, because I wanted certain Liberace pieces pieces of furniture to look really cool outdoors without getting ruined. Mm -hmm. So in my weird mind, the best way to do that was like, oh, I'm just going to have it dipped in rubber. Okay, which makes sense theoretically. And then I would have to go through the process of finding somebody who could do that and then convincing them that they should dip my sofas, chairs, tables, and everything in their giant rubber vats. <laughs> and, and sidebar, Michael Douglas crushed Liberace in, in the movie. Yes, he did. Oh, my God. Awesome I, movie. Yeah. I've never seen that. Yeah. Oh, you should see it. Really? What's it called? Liberace. <laughs> yeah. Is it time for a commercial break, Brad? <laughs> and, yeah, Matt, Matt, Matt Damon is co-starring. It, it's actually a really awesome. Actually, movie. I don't watch TV, but I did watch that. Yeah, no, I, I outstanding, outstanding movie. I'm actually uh, a, a huge fan of of him because of that movie. I didn't really have any, any background on him. Interesting. I wasn't old enough. It. Uh, I mean, I started with. I uh, remember uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons used to used to reference Liberace. I you know, wish my brother George oh, yeah. was here when he was doing it. Um. I don't know how we got off on that. I want to talk more about furniture. Yeah. So you reclaimed the – so you take vintage pieces. I take vintage pieces. I mean, basically what I am is a sustainable interior designer. <clears throat> okay. So, you know, that doesn't mean anything to most people until I tell them exactly what it is. And basically, I know that most furniture that you see in big box stores are just a regurgitation or a replication of something they saw – 25 to 30 years beforehand. Mm-hmm. Well, I collect those pieces and I reimagine them and I turn them into works of art, not only just to get into the homes of people, but I've been lucky enough to um, have people who own some major galleries call me up and say, hey, we know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. We want, we've, we've never had furniture as art in our galleries and we want to showcase you. Mm-hmm. So do you like, actually? Well, is it, can you sit on? Um, oh yeah, furniture? you can sit. I mean, you can do anything you. you okay, all right. I, I didn't know if it was like, hey, this is this chair is for show only. No, you sit on it, you're it, done. That's I'm, your grandmother. <laughs> okay, <laughs> put but it in plastic. Take the plastic for, off. Yeah. For me, it's 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 literally about 
two things. How do you save furniture from a landfill that's that's really well made compared to what you find nowadays? Because mm-hmm. we all, well, we don't all know about fast furniture, but fast furniture exists. It's crap that lasts for three to five years and then it goes into a landfill. Because I think the word apart. the word you're looking for is IKEA. <laughs> well, IKEA is a bit of it, but IKEA. Uh, sort of like knows who they are yeah. mm-hmm. but a lot of companies mask that and say that they're fantastic when they really aren't right restoration um, hardware <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. well I didn't hear that at all was that subliminal did that they're work as a subliminal they now oh yeah you're right you're right you're right <laughs> no. but, but, the, but the thing is is that there's you know I pick up furniture from a time period where they really actually paid attention to craftsmanship mm-hmm. and it's just like giving a new hairstyle you just change it out you make it absolutely spectacular and then it's something that isn't off a mass production line. Mm-hmm. It's something that's tailored to what you want or what you like. You know, So if you're looking for a red sofa and you can't find it anywhere or anything you like because there's a style that you like from the 1940s, 50s, or 60s, mm-hmm. I probably have the furniture and all I need to do is reupholster it to mm-hmm. make you happy. Well, yeah. as I can attest to you is like every furniture piece that I moved for uh, any of my grandparents over the years, they built stuff to last back then. Yes, they did. So, like, I totally get what you're saying. You know, like, you, and it was built by someone, right? It didn't just come off some kind of, you know, a an assembly line where legs, yeah. springs, blood, blood, sweat, and tears put, put were put in. Oh, I have furniture where people have signed their name on it. Really? Yeah, That's it's, cool. it's amazing. That's pretty cool. And you know, it's going to last a century or more. Yeah. Hundred percent, and it's more than. And also, I mean, you do the reupholstering, you know, and the and the covers, but then you also do a huge transformation to the pieces in many cases as well. Yeah, I don't just turn it into something beige. No. Okay. <laughs> well said. And and you know, a lot of people want that safety net. I'm sorry to say, I don't give that kind of safety net. I really turn it into a. a, a a unique piece of art, you know, something that's a statement piece. So half the time, if, you, if you're looking for something really interesting and all you go and see is beige, gray, or taupe, you know, coming to me, you know you're not going to get that. You're going to get something no. that you really want. You've got to know, You've yeah, you you got to, you got to, don't be a pushover with, uh, with Carter. He will not allow... You will have something extraordinary. We're going to take a really quick break, and then we're going to continue this conversation because this is some interesting stuff. Stick with us. It was winter in Manhattan, falling snowflakes filled the air. The streets were covered with a film of ice. But a little Welcome back to Drink in the Style Sundays at 5 p.m. And now Saturdays at 7 p.m. Uh, right here on AM 950 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Available as a streamer podcast, Drink in the Style. You can check all that out. Before we get back to Carter... A note on today's musical selection. Tracks are off of Frank Sinatra's 1954 Young Lovers studio album. A solid album, not one of my favorites ever. It had a transitional period between, as Carter, you've pointed out, when Sinatra was kind of a Bing Crosby-esque crooner and before he fully blossomed into a stylist and a swinging creator of stylized music. But let me ask you, are you a Sinatra fan? I love Frank Sinatra. 
Especially, actually, I love it when he was trying to stylize after Bing Crosby, and also when he found himself. I love that evolution mm-hmm. because anybody who is creative, truly creative, loves to watch people who they are inspired by also evolve. Which hi- highlights to my way. Oh yeah, yeah. culminates. Yeah, that, in that's, my way, that's when it happened. Which actually he did not like as a song. Of course he didn't, because he was an artist. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? A lot. A lot of artists are very hard on themselves. Uh, uh, yeah. Hello. <laughs> hello. <laughs> not going there. Yeah. No. Sinatra. You're 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 a Sinatra fan. We've learned oh, this totally. over the discussion. Yeah. And uh, it's it's absolutely true. I mean, he was a crooner. He was he was the Justin Bieber of his day. Ugh. At the early point, he was he was. Well, actually, even at the early point, he wasn't the Justin Bieber of his day. Tell me. Um, he because that was a different generation than what we have now. So Justin Bieber came up as a child prodigy that was more associated with Michael Jackson than something that Frank Sinatra would ever do. So Michael Jackson had this amazing sort of like uh, interpretation of how to sing a song that was so different than his brothers and their abhorrent father Mm -hmm. figured it out because at least his father was smart enough to realize when opportunity exists Mm -hmm. and went, oh my God, we're going to take this seven-year-old and we're going to turn him into something amazing, which he did. Mm -hmm. Well, fair enough. I mean, yeah, there's there's a certain amount of credit. But when I talk about Justin Bieber of his day, what I'm saying is that Sinatra in the 1930s, you know, when he made the the trip from Hoboken, New Jersey, across the river into New York, and suddenly became kind of a crooner as a, a junior version of Bing Crosby, copying, crib noting, if you will, his style and his tones. He was he was an unpopular figure in the sense that he seemed like he was not creating anything original. And he could have simply been passed over at a certain point, except that at a certain point he developed his own sense of self. Well, it's like Georgia O'Keeffe who copied, you know, other artists and went, Oh my God, this is stupid. I'm gonna do my own thing now that I know how to now now that I know how the skills Mm-hmm. To do this kind of work, mm-hmm. I'm going to do my own thing, which means he was or she was following the Picasso theory of learn your craft really well, mm-hmm. and then you have the ability to find your own voice. All right, so you just opened the door on, on my key question <laughs> that I give to artists because we've had a number of really fabulous artists on the program, and I'm so proud of that. Here's my question to you as an artist. Do you need to master realism before you can branch into creative art? Do you have to be a Rembrandt before you can be a Picasso? You have to master your own personal limits of your skill. And even beyond. Know know thyself, yeah. Exactly. Know thyself before you go somewhere forward. And the way that I can express that is Kandinsky. So Kandinsky trying to be a real artist, except that he sucked at it. (laughs) He sucked at it. Don't let me spit-take my death in the afternoon. (laughs) So, I mean, he... And and the brilliance of him is that 
He knew it. Mm-hmm. But then he figured out how to develop something that hadn't happened before. And so he became the father of avant-garde art because he – at least he knew what his skill set was. And he knew how to brand that in the early 20th century mm-hmm. really well. Mm-hmm. And he became who he was as a father of avant-garde art in Russia, of mm-hmm. all places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The most repressive and regressive of states. Yeah. So you're saying, no, you do not have to master realism to express yourself. But you no, do have to try. You do have to try in, in, in the form of Picasso or many other artists, including myself. I mean, I'm a trained fresco artist. By the way, folks, if you, if you can check out some of Carter's work, the murals, the art creations, some fabulous stuff. I mean, you do awesome stuff. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. But I trained over in Europe. Right, so I mean, I know how to make artwork out of like chicken eggs and beer, and you know all the ingredients they <laughs> it's use. It's like voodoo. Yeah. All the ingredients Just they mix, use, mix you know, a couple of centuries ago. Yeah. And so when I would go into people's homes and I would be using these natural ingredients, they would sit there and film me or photograph me, because I was creating artwork out of like something other than acrylic paint or oil paint that you can buy at a grocery store. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, was, okay, I have, I have to I have to cut in real quick because um, we're all we're all part of this. Mm-hmm. I recommend any of our listeners that listen on uh, AM nine fifty on either Saturday or Sunday log on to Facebook Live and watch watch the show. The amount of hand talking that goes on at this table <laughs> is ridiculous. I don't know what Every single about. one of us I are doing no things. Idea what we're all doing about. things. The hand talking <laughs> it just it just tickles me pink. It's enough to. Th- to throw a deaf person into an epileptic seizure. I mean, there's so much head talking going on. But and I'm know, a when I, well. when I, 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 you know, I came from Cornish Institute where I got a uh, fine arts degree, and then I submitted my portfolio to a fresco master over in Europe, and I thought I'm never going to get in because my my portfolio sucks, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I thought. Yeah, fine, I'm going to submit, but I'm never going to get anywhere. And then I got accepted, right, into this this program over in Barcelona, Spain. And I thought, oh, my God, they're going to think of me as a fraud, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. And and the whole point was is that he looked at my portfolio and he thought, oh, this person's dedicated. He's got potential. He, he saw a bigger picture than what I was saying at the time. And so I went over to Barcelona, Spain, and I learned the art of fresco painting. And I thought, this is crazy. What the hell am I doing learning the art, learning an ancient art that isn't practiced anymore? And I'm sorry. I, I have no idea what fresco is. Michelangelo. Ah, heard painting it. large images, large paintings on walls, ceilings. Hence, the m- muralism. Structure muralism. is, yeah. your, is okay. your canvas. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, and I thought, how am I even going to uh, apply this in the 20th century? What the hell am I going to do with this degree in you know, fine art and muralism? I, I, mm-hmm. Am I crazy? Mm-hmm. And then I went back to the United States, and I thought, okay, I'm going to work in theater. Mm-hmm. I'm going to paint backdrops for theater, and then I'm going to use my 
expertise and and uh, you know quotation marks. Air quotes. Air quotes. That, <laughs> Hand talking. Yeah, that that is going to like come about, and it did. Mm-hmm. And what I found out is that historical restoration work, um, and 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 people who wanted really unusual you know murals by people using old world techniques still exist. Which is a fabulous, fabulous segue into your Staples, Minnesota project. Oh, yeah. Holy crap. All right. So you are doing a restoration of an opera house in Staples, Minnesota, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Tell us all about this. You were mentioning this was a time capsule that now you are that you are restoring and recreating. Give us the deets. So how I even got the project is I own a loft in downtown Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And it's that old school New York loft. It's not one of the fancy, super expensive lofts. It's, it's old school. It's the stuff you see in movies. Uh, <laughs> certainly not the stuff you pay for now, but the mm-hmm. stuff you see in movies. And I used to host these big events where like 100, 200 people would come to my loft and see – uh, let's say something on breast cancer, which is what um, happened at this time where I met a woman named Colleen who um, went through breast cancer, agreed to do a photograph of herself with her mastectomy mm-hmm. with these amazing photographers. Mm-hmm. And um, it was showcased in my place to raise money for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, the event was called Of Scars, and it would show the scars of women who had gone through a mastectomy. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I asked the photographers if I should take down a mural on a piece of canvas that I was working on. And they said, no, your place is really cool. Let's just keep it as is. So we had the event, and the woman who was the star of the damn show looked at my mural, and she came up to me, and she said, I have this opera house in Staples, Minnesota, which I had no idea where Staples was. I was going to ask, where the hell is Staples? It's two and a half hours away from here. You can consider it the Hamptons of Minnesota. Northeast, south or west? The Hamptons of Minnesota. Yeah. So it's where the lumber barons built their, in air quotes, mansions. (laughs) Really? You know, summer homes, which really are like 10,000 square foot mansions. Mm -hmm. The breakers. And... um, at the time, in the early 20th century, Staples was the cultural center of Minnesota. Cultural center? Yes. Ugh. I am not kidding. Four opera houses. Yeah. Like sophistication beyond belief. And right. then um, the depression of the 1930s killed it. But at the time, it was amazing. And I met this woman, and she really gave me a new lease on life. And that was creating murals and doing restoration work Within for that her space. opera house. Yes. All right. We got to take a break, but we're going to come back. We're going to keep talking about the Staples Opera House restoration because it's totally cool. Stick with us, ladies and gentlemen. You say that you still love My story is much too sad to be told, but practically everything leaves me totally cold the only exception i know is the case welcome back 
Welcome back to Drinking the Style. Uh, we've been speaking with Carter Averbeck from Omforme. The more you say it, the more you enjoy saying it. Yeah. Right? Johnson, hit us with an Omforme. Omforme, yes. Nice. 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 All right. Um, before we get into anything else, Carter, you do amazing stuff. You have some gorgeous pictures, these Renaissance murals that you've done on Instagram that are posted and things. Tell everybody how they can check out the awesomeness that is Carter Everbeck. Well, Instagram for one. Okay. Uh, just follow me at Omforme, which is O-M-F-O-R-M-E. O-M-F-O-R-M-E. That's Om it. Omform. Um, and... Um, yeah, I think it's crazy that I've been able to create an entire career <laughs> literally off of doing art and design. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, case in point with this opera house, I mean, I met a woman who um, influenced my entire life in the past year and a half, basically because I met her for 10 minutes at a function I was having at my own loft. Mm -hmm. And there was a portrait of her with her scars from her um, breast augmentation during, uh, for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And she was intently looking at a mural that I was painting for a client at my house. And we started talking about the mural and I, you know, it, it sounds trite, but, you know, because I paint murals on a regular basis, to me it's nothing special. And I forget that it's special to other people. Mm -hmm. And so she loved what I was doing. And apparently she never forgot it. So for the eight years in between her calling me, she remembered what I did. And she kept on going around to different churches and government buildings and other places where I had done resuscitation of mural work or historical work. And my name came up so much that finally she called me eight years later and said, I want you to do my opera house. Turns out it's one of 13 opera houses in the country of its kind. It's one where the, the Bavarian mural work that's there and the fresco work that's there has been there since the beginning, since 1907. It hasn't been changed, altered, painted over, any of the stuff that normally would happen to historical buildings. So the place was shut down in, like, what year? Uh, Mid-1930s, during the major part of the Depression. Okay, so the Depression era shuts down the Staples Opera House. Mm -hmm. Everything gets locked in time yep. through that period. And now... It comes in, and it's a state project that they're trying to do the restoration on. Oh, yeah. And you are asked to do the full restoration of the space. Yes, and, and the story behind that is she called me up, and she said, I want you to do the restoration work. Um, I need you to come up and do an assessment of the building. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And I drove the two and a half hours to get to Staples, Minnesota from Minnesota, which really isn't very long, to tell you the truth. It's kind of like going to the Hamptons, right? It's not long. Well, depending on where you're leaving from, but New York to yeah. the Hampton, Hamptons is, what, an hour and a half? Yeah. Hour and a okay. half. It's around there. So 
I get there, and there's a whole line of people waiting there. I don't know who the hell they are, but I'm asked to do an assessment of the building. So I go around, I look at everything, and I realize early 20th century, mm, Bavarian painting, they clearly only had one good artist doing the sacrofresco work, and everybody else was just sort of like farmhands or whoever who volunteered to. Like, seriously, within the space, you think yeah. the opera house was done by farmhands? Oh, there's a the portion of it, yes. Okay. Yeah, because there's a lot of um, stencil work within the opera house itself. Hmm. It doesn't involve the main fresco panels that were painted. And, and, and I saw that, and I realized that. And it's, a, it's about understanding those aspects of what happened in time. So I came back to this line of people who I had no idea who they were. And, and, I, and I, I tend to be a very honest person, so I don't candy coat things. And I said, okay, this was the grand opera house for the time, for this area it certainly has amazing acoustics beyond belief, beyond anything we have in the Twin Cities. But the artwork was done by locals. Mm. And one really decent fresco painter. Mm -hmm. And then I, I extrapolated on that. And they looked at me sort of like in horror and awe. And the owner of the building came up to me and said, Congratulations. You told the entire history of the building. Anything about it. Mm. You're hired. I don't care what anybody on the board thinks. Hey, not going to lie. Uh, at O-M-F-O-R-M-E. Your Instagram is dope as hell. Thank you. Uh, yeah. No, I was. I, just, I sat back and just chilled. I was like, let me check this out. Uh, man, that's crazy. And, and I, lo I love the way you do the... The, the multiple scenes where you can hit the picture and you can hone in on one spot, but you, you put it as one portrait. Now, you're, you're pretty good, bro. You're pretty good. Thank you. No, that's that's gnarly. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Dan enjoying Instagram while Carter Honestly, I'm not, talking. No, it's yeah, true. He's, a, he's, 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 he's no, it's absolutely no, beautiful. That's awesome, I mean, man. You do art. That's, you're an artist. But, it, but it's, it's really cool stuff. Your repurposed furniture. I mean, it, it's sexy. Uh, it's it's got well, contour. It's got make, class. I have to make that furniture look good for millennials. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I have to make it look good for Gen Xers who feel like they want to be part of like the here and now. Yeah, man, you're knocking out of the park. And some of those where you have like your furniture in front of murals that you've also done, like that's that's awesome, man. It's really cool stuff. Well, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. It, it it is. So yeah. All right. So have you? Are you putting Staples uh, Opera House pictures up? Are you? Are you doing the? Wait. Are you walking us through the restoration of I, the space? I am. We got. We got, and, and I'm doing it slowly because we have to deal with um, public f or uh, uh, funding from the state. Mm. So we've got public funding available, right? Meaning people who want to donate. Did to it the pass? Because wasn't it just recently voted upon whether they would? Well, right now it's still in the voting process. Um, but our, <gasps> should we our, should we rally people to call their representatives to support yes. the Staple House? Yeah, or please do because it's another part of making Minnesota cool. Mm -hmm. You know, and we already think we're cool, but this is another version of cool that we can add on top of it. So. The governor of – we asked for 
$8 million in state bonds. Mm-hmm. That's an insane number to ask for, for a $16 million renovation, which we can only ask for half of it mm-hmm. uh, legally. Mm-hmm. So um, that doesn't mean that the governor and the state legislature is going to say, oh, yeah, we think you're worth it. <laughs> you know, they're not going to do that, right? They're going to look at it objectively and see where they want to place the money to help the state of Minnesota. Of course. Mm-hmm. Well, the governor recently, in about two weeks ago, said, oh, yeah, this is worth everything they're asking for. Mm-hmm. Everything. This will take a blighted area and make it a jewel in the state. And anything, anything remotes tourism and destination locations, oh. like, yeah. And this is a destination like nobody's business. It, it's, it's already on my list now. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I can't wait to see it. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. <gasps> Should we do a trip? One of oh, the, one of the uh, uh, Senator Gazelka walked in, and, and within less than three seconds, he went, oh, my God. God, this is the Sistine Chapel in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. This is the amount of culture we had here that we've been ignoring for decades. That's awesome. So the robber barons tried to create a destination, a point of, of civilization in the wilderness. Because no offense to Staples, but folks here in the wilderness. Well, they didn't Especially have... Then. They didn't have Netflix in 1907. <laughs> no chill, no Netflix. You went out to an event and you experienced life. And interacted with people? No way. No way. And you can still do that today in 2020. Wow. So what is the plan for the for the location now? What are they going to use? Once the restoration is completed, what does this opera house... Because I, I don't want to offend you, but opera is not that popular anymore. Well, it's not about opera anymore. It's about a destination spot for um, I mean, theater, all kinds right? of performance venues. Live performance. So it could be a rock band, it could be an opera, it could be a theater performance, it could be a local performance. Apparently, well, not apparently, it is It is documented that Staples has one of the best choirs in the state. And I've experienced it, and they really do. Hmm. That choir is beyond amazing. So you're taking the opera house, turning it into a multi-use venue that yes. is still true to its nature. Yes, that that's field trip worthy. I think we should really discuss this. Actually, I agree. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. You, you should come with us. Are and, you doing? And, and I'm not only the lead historian, you know, artist to refurbish all of the decorative painting in the place, but I've also been hired as the lead interior designer to create the other rooms around it. Oh, so Shantae. It's an opera house, not an opera hall, and there's a difference. And I can tell you about that in the next segment. <laughs> Or, or uh, next, next time appearance. we hang out. Yeah. Oh, God. There it is, my friends. Carter Averbeck, you have been a freaking delight. This has been uh, an absolute joy. We've enjoyed the absinthe. I don't have time to do a quote, but ladies and gentlemen, Carter will be back on the program shortly. Stay with us in the future. La, 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 la.